chapter 17, if you will. And as uh, you're doing that, uh, I just want to say again to Chris and Jason, uh, thank you for all the work they've done while the Moorheads were away. Uh, Matt and Haley and the girls were in the first service, and he'll be back speaking beginning next week. Uh, so, uh, so we'll look forward to that. Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, picking up from where we left off last week. So I'm going to read verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And now that you've gotten all comfortable, if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand and we'll read uh, together. Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bringing some strange things to our ears we wish to know therefore what these things mean now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said men of Athens I perceive that in every way you are very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I'll ask you to pray with me if you will. <clears throat> Lord, as we come to your word, I ask that you would help us to be mindful of the fact that you've given us your word in order to understand what you're like and to understand what we are like, to understand our need and to understand your willingness to provide for our needs. And so I ask this morning that this would, uh, as we go through this, that it would uh, turn our hearts towards you. 
So, Lord, I, I pray for help both as I speak and as people listen. Let your word do its work. And uh, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of the challenges of the Bible is that it is a big book. It's a very big book. It's 66 books compiled together. And so when you read it, it can be a little bit challenging to get an overview of what the Bible is saying or a balanced view. So if you dive into one spot but don't pick up the other spots of the Bible, it might give you a warped view of what the Bible says. Last week, we went through the first part of the book, of, uh, first part of Acts chapter 17. And as we went through that first part, it, it made me think of it in this way, that if you were looking at a house and you went into this house that perhaps you were thinking about buying and you only went into the kitchen and didn't see any of the rest of the house, you might come away from that house thinking, well, it's a very efficient kitchen. It will do all that it needs to do. But you may come away thinking that, that it wouldn't be very practical to live in if you didn't realize that there were bedrooms and other things. Well, as we looked at Acts chapter 17 last week, we talked about how there are some, a minority, but there are some who are actively opposed to the gospel and do what they can to stop the spread of the gospel and who are intentionally, actively seeking to quiet the truth of what the Bible says. But that is just a small minority of people. It would be possible from what we saw last week to come away with the impression that anybody who is not a believer who is actively opposed to the good news of Jesus. And if that were the case, then the normal thing to do would be to re re withdraw in a defensive stance, a defensive posture, retreat to a Christian cathedral of some sort, and have a grace trebuchet and launch out missiles of truth that would land somewhere on the street in order to uh, spread the message. But that isn't what the Bible tells us. And so when we come to Acts chapter 17, the latter half of the, book, the chapter, we're going to see inside of here how we should approach those who do not believe or do not yet believe in the good news of Jesus. We'll revisit this when I get towards the end, but at the end of the chapter that I read to you, some believed, some needed more time to think about it, and some chose to re reject the good news of the gospel. But when we read the second half of the chapter we, that we just read, it indicates that a lot of what we see in our world is not objection to the good news of Christ, but rather it's ignorance about the good news. These verses describe the posture that we should have towards those who don't believe. And if we are to frame it in two broad categories, we should approach those who do not yet believe, first of all, with tears, and secondly, with truth. Both of these have to be in supply, in, in, in big supply, as we approach those who do not understand the gospel, or do not know the gospel, the good news of Jesus. What Eugene Peterson said of Athens has become true of our world. It's a junkyard of idols. And if Paul were to walk today in our cities, if he were to, walk, were to walk down the streets of Wilmington as he walked through Athens, his heart would have been agitated and stirred at what he saw people worshiping because they were worshiping and putting confidence in something that can only be a hopeless idol. And so when we come to this, we want to address it both as Paul looks at it and the tears that he had as well as the truth that he presented. So let's just kind of think our way through these verses. First of all, Paul's just 
is agitated by the idols. Here's how he ended up in Athens. In Acts chapter 16, Chris spoke about it two weeks ago. Paul and some of his companions were put into prison because they had been preaching the good news of Jesus. Last week when we looked through Acts chapter 17 in the beginning of the chapter, it was it re, uh, recounted for us how Paul had been run out of Thessalonica by a mob. And he was run out by the mob because he dared to declare the gospel story, the good news story. And in a nugget, that story is that it's necessary for Christ, for Jesus, to suffer for the sins of humanity. And that Jesus then had arisen from the dead as proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of Christ's life, of Jesus' life. Tim Keller kind of sums it up like this, and I think it's a good way to sum it up. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever dare hope. This is the gospel, the good news. And so Paul had been sent out of Thessalonica, sent out of uh, the city there, Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, sent out of Berea, and he went to Athens. And so now he finds himself in this city. He's waiting for his companions to come before they start their, their, their effort at spreading the gospel. Now, the Athens of City is one that we've heard of, still in existence today. At that time, it it's not as, wasn't as powerful as it had been, but it was still one of the cultural centers of the Roman world. The other two were Rome and Italy, and then Alexandria and Egypt, and the third of these was Athens and Greece. You may remember from your reading of history and your study of history that it was uh, the place where Plato and Socrates and Aristotle would walk around and espouse their philosophies. And so Athens uh, prided itself on its intellectual sophistication. And as we read in verse 21 of Acts chapter 17, like our newscasters and our pundits of the day in our 24-hour news cycle, Many of the people just spent their days telling and hearing something new. And so there was this constant uh, sharing of information. The marketplace that Paul was walking on was the center of town. It was a place of commerce and it was a place of trade. It was a very busy place. It was a, a hubbub of activity there in the center of the city. And so there were things that were traded. The market portion was there. But it was also the primary place of discussion. If you wanted to convey some sort of idea that you wanted to convince people of, you couldn't do it through Facebook. That wasn't here yet. Or whatever other means that uh, people use to spread this kind of information. You couldn't do that. So if you wanted to convey some idea for a group of people, you would go to the marketplace, meet with them, and talk. And in the same way, if you're an academician, if you were a philosopher... There weren't journals that you would write your ideas out about and then share them with your, with your peers and have give and take in, in that fashion. So you would go then to the marketplace and the philosophers would discuss this idea and that idea. This, the location where people made their living. They would sell their wares and they would trade for what they needed. And so much of the community life happened inside of the marketplace. This is where Paul showed up, and he began to walk day by day. And as he would walk into the marketplace, he would begin to reason and talk with the people who were there. A lot of them would have been self-made individuals. They were the entrepreneurs of the day. A lot of them were self-sufficient. They had charge of their lives. And so between these entrepreneurs and these philosophers and these tradesmen, 
along, all of them moved together. They were the social movers and the shakers of the day, the cultural shakers of the day. And they were all located there in Athens. And the verses tell us that as Paul walked along the streets of Athens, his soul was grieved. In the English Standard Version that we just read, it said that his soul was provoked. And it's a word that's a little bit difficult to capture in English because it's got multiple sides to it. But perhaps we could sum it up by saying it was a, it was a mix of anger and a mix of sadness. And both of those are proper emotions when we see people worshiping worthless idols. On the one hand, there can be anger because it, it just doesn't make sense and it's not good for people. And as we'll see shortly, so there is a place for anger as it relates to these idols. But there's also a place for sadness the tears that ought to come when we see how people are wasting their lives. So Paul, as he walks along through Athens, sees what we so often miss, that these idols were not just an innocent way to pass time, but they held in their sway the very souls of men. There were all sorts of idols in Athens, and some people said that there were more idols than there were people. And people would worship any idol that catered to their particular need. And so they might worship one idol at one time and a different idol at another time. And it was such that if you needed help in the matters of love, maybe you worship the goddess Venus or maybe the god Cupid. If you were at the time of harvesting crops, maybe you worship the god of Saturn, who is the, the god of ag agriculture. If you were getting ready to make a voyage on a boat, maybe you worship the god of Neptune, the god of the sea. There were idols for every imaginable thing under the sun. And there was even an idol to an unknown God. And that title of that altar, the altar to the unknown God, gives us a clear cue that there was some kind of hidden suspicion in the minds and hearts of the people that even though they had this multiplicity of idols that they worshipped, that they were still missing something. They had not covered all of their bases. And so just in case there was a God that they missed out on, they, they just named him simply the unknown God. Paul knew this unknown God, and he felt compelled to declare the riches of God's grace to these people who were unknowingly blind and groping about. And it might be a good place here just to kind of slow down and talk about the reality of idols. At least in the Western world, named gods have fallen out of favor. We don't worship Cupid. We don't worship Neptune. We don't worship Ares. But we still have our idols. We have American Idol. We have singers that we call our idol or sports figures that we call our idol. But technology and scientific advancement have made us skeptical of these gods, and they've made us skeptical even of God himself. But then sometimes technology and, and science become their own idols as they try to explain everything under the sun. But all of human history tells us that people are worshipers. There's something inside of us that desires help from someone outside of us, and all of the technology in the world, all of the science in the world, all of the explanations of the world cannot erase the God-shaped vacuum that is in all of us. We cannot expunge worship from our lives. It's built into our, into our DNA. It's built into what we are, that we will worship something. We cannot expunge worship from our lives. We can only exchange the worship of one God for another. And so we do. 
Some of our idols we worship because we like them. They provide for us some sort of comfort or some sense of meaning. Because we like them, we come back to them again and again and again, and we worship them. And in some sense, in some way, they, they do borrow from the true God, and so they fulfill at least some aspect of human longing. And what they provide to us is, is enough to keep us entangled, but not enough to set us free. So we are, attach ourselves to them as indentured servants. We exchange our freedom for the perceived comfort that they give to us. So we pursue idols of beauty or idols of success or idols of science. And we, in the process, we barter our souls for whatever they can provide. But in this process... There bubbles up from underneath the truth that the writer of Psalms talks about in Psalm 135. And this is what he says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. And all these worthless pretend gods have to be created in some way by humans. And so we fashion them by either silver or gold. They are the work of our hands. But then the psalmist goes on and begins to describe them. And he says this. They have mouths but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. But then there is a statement that summarizes um, this psalm that is startling and ought to catch our attention, and it says this, those who make them, those who make these idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make these idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. We become, inevitably, we become like what we worship. Idols gradually unman us. Idols gradually inhumanize us. And they make us silent to what we should say. They make us blind to what we should see. They make us deaf to what we should hear. So some idols we worship because we like them. But there's other idols that we worship because we fear what will happen if we don't worship them. In the 16th century, it's reported that the Aztec nation offered daily human sacrifices to the sun god. The belief was that if they did not offer this human sacrifice, then the sun would not rise the next day. So they sacrificed every day, and the next morning, every morning, the sun came up. It seemed to work. And they were fearful that if they did not worship in this way, that the world would end. It likely wasn't that they delighted in that kind of sacrifice. It was just that they were so afraid that if they can, did not continue it, that their world would fall apart. It was the same way for the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. You can read about the, the idol god Molech. And I'm choosing my words carefully because of the age of the, uh, some in the congregation. But you can read between the lines that this God, the Jehovah God, the true God, hated. Because part of the requirement of Molech was to give children as a way to appease this awful idol. And Israelites who knew the true God, some of them who lost their way, thought that this kind of worship would keep them from harm. From harm. It would be hard to imagine that they enjoyed or liked giving up their children, but they f were fearful about what would happen if they didn't engage in this kind of ritual. And it's still the same for us today. 
There's some idols that we worship because we like them. But there's other idols we worship because we're fearful of what will happen if we stop. And that's why when we address idols of our age, the idols of our world, the tears have to be a part of the process. Because people are trapped and they're caught and they're broken by these worthless idols and they're fearful to stop worshiping them lest their lives fall apart. No wonder Jesus said to us, lift up your eyes to the fields because they're white unto harvest. Too often our eyes are down at our feet or our eyes are looking on our own pursuits of pleasure and we never look into the tears of the souls that we see. We don't identify the hopelessness of their idols. And so sometimes we have a tendency to complain because they're evil, doing evil things or they're doing wicked things. Or maybe they have a pessimistic approach to life. And so rather than seeing underneath what is going on to see what they're really worshiping, we, 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 we reject them. We forget to look at the cause of their sadness or why they do the things that they do. Maybe we decide we don't like their hair or we don't like their jewelry or we don't like their drugs or we don't like their disrespect or we don't like their rebellion or we don't like their music or we don't like their views of marriage or we don't like their politics or we don't like their policies or we don't like their religious views. And you can fill in the blank. We find all sorts of reasons to set ourselves over against those who have not yet believed in the true Christ. But that is not the biblical paradigm. We are called as people who are worshipers of God, of the true God, to have hearts that are broken. We won't be effective at sharing the truth if our hearts are not broken over the brokenness of people. So one of the first steps in sharing the good news is to have a broken heart, to embrace the tears that inevitably happen when we genuinely look at how people are living their lives. Look to see underneath what people do and what they say. What sawed-off idol are they worshiping that will make them turn them into these stunted humans? I don't mean that negatively in the sense that they aren't um, well-cultured and all of those things, but if we're becoming what we worship, then inevitably false gods end up breaking us. Here is the approach that Paul gives to those who are not yet believing. It's from the book of 1 Timothy, and it says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We're not set over against those who don't believe, but kind to everyone, able to teach, to describe, to declare what the gospel is, the truth is, patiently enduring evil in the event that there is some sort of kickback against the gospel. But it says this, that he should, we should correct our opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's good to, for us to remember that those who, are not believing, who have not believed in Christ are ensnared by the devil and captured by him to do his will. It's good for us to remember that God has given us a story of our own. That once we worshipped something, but somewhere along the way, God opened up our eyes to the truth and he set us free. We have a story to tell. So our hearts should be full of tears and our mouths should be full of the truth. It says to us that when Paul walked through the uh, marketplace and he saw this and his heart was grieved, it says, so he reasoned with them. 
And Paul spoke with the various groups. And while we don't have recorded precisely what he said to each group, we do have enough of a record of what he said uh, to understand what he said at the Areopagus. His message there gives us a good indication of what we ought to be saying to our world. Here's the message that he proclaimed. And I'll read it again just to get it fresh in our mind. But if you pick up at verse uh, 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar to this inscription to the unknown God. What you therefore worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from him one man of every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. And I'll stop reading there. But this is the message that should be proclaimed. When Paul went to the synagogue, as he did in this chapter, he started out going to the synagogue, and it says that he reasoned with them there. Well, when he went to the synagogue, he didn't start with creation. He started right in on, on Jesus being the Messiah, the promised Messiah. There was already a backdrop for those who were attached to the synagogue and understanding about the fact that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when he goes to this other group of people who do not have the Bible as a background and that Old Testament setting for the gospel to flourish in, the good news to flourish in, he starts with the fact that God is the creator. God as the creator is a starting point for everything else. In a world where we are told that humanity is are just the result of time plus chance, that we are simply atoms that are formed together by random good luck, it's no wonder that we cast about desperate to find some meaning for existence. Denying that God is the creator. We've lost our anchor. And so we don't know where we've come from. And because we don't know where we've come from, we don't know where we are going. And so Paul begins with creation because that's the basis of our dignity. We as humans have value. We're not divine ourselves, but we are made in God's image. We have worth. We should not waste our value on worshiping lesser gods. And so we start there with the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. The next thing that he talks to them about is that God is self-sufficient. You remember earlier I talked about Aristotle just briefly, but one of the tenets of Aristotle is that there's an unmoved mover. That is, there's someone or something that stands at the very beginning of everything who created everything that, that exists or everything emanated out of that. Well, Paul is emphasizing that God is the one who is the first cause. God is the unmoved mover. Something or someone has always existed. existed. And Paul declares that it is a self-sufficient God. Paul clarifies that this God who is self-sufficient is not needy. The other gods are needy. They need us to create them. They need things from us but not the true God. We don't give him a place to live. We don't provide him a service that somehow sustains him. He is the one who provides breath and life and everything. And Paul makes that very clear. 
Paul also declares that he is sovereign in, verses, in verse 26. People were alive, but they didn't choose where they were born. They didn't choose when they were born. But Paul makes it very clear that this creator, who is also self-sustaining, who does not need any of us, is the one who is sovereign. And this sovereign God decided when you would be born and where you would be born and what you would hear during the time of your life. And he did this, not just doing it randomly or haphazardly, but he did this so that, it tells us, so that men would seek God. And so the particular reason that we're born at this particular time in this particular place and every human has been born in their particular time at their particular place is so that men would seek God. It says then that he not only is the God who is sovereign, but he's the God who is present. And so in Acts 17 verses 27 and 28, you may have noticed as we were reading through there that there's two sentences that are kind of indented from the rest of the text. Those two indentions are poems from the Athenian group of, of poets. And so Paul is quoting to them uh, some of their own poetry. But he makes it very plain that God is present. He's near. The fact that he is creator and the fact that he is sovereign and the fact that he is self-sufficient does not remove him from people. He is near at hand and close at hand. And so he declares that God. That is part of the truth about God, but then Paul goes now to at least what for us in the Western culture is a difficult portion of God. That he's the ruling God. He's a God of judgment. And so at verses 29 through 30, it says, um, I'm sorry, verse 30, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's a God of judgment. In 1866, Dostoevsky, the Russian author, wrote his book, Crime and Punishment. In that book, the main character, the central character, devises the perfect murder. And so he commits the perfect murder, and he's done such a good job of devising this murder that he covers his tracks so well that the authorities cannot find out that it is him. But the remainder of the book is him grappling with his guilt conscience because the fact that he was able to get away with it didn't allow him to escape the reality of God and the reality of punishment, and that is why the title is Crime and Punishment. He could have gotten away. Nobody else knew. But the reality is that when there is a God, there is also judgment because there is a God who oversees what is going on. In 1979, a movie came out by Woody Allen. I've not seen the movie, so I can't recommend it, but I've read about it. The name of it is Crimes and Misdemeanors. And Woody Allen is very intentional in the way that he builds his storyline for this movie. And again, there's a person who devises a perfect murder. And he devises a perfect murder so well that when he commits the murder, he is not caught, cannot be caught. But a portion of this movie is the conversation that takes place about whether or not there can be morals and ethics if there is no God. And so that is the reason for the title. Crimes, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, Crimes and Misdemeanors by Woody Allen. If there is a God and human lives have value, 
then the taking of a human life requires punishment. On the other hand, if there is no God, and humans were not made by a God, then the taking of a life is simply a misdemeanor, a minor crime that has no real bearing. God is not vindictive in his judgment. He has made us. He knows what is best for us. His anger is awakened when we piddle away what he has made on lesser gods. The seeing God is angered when we worship blind idols. The hearing God is angered when we talk to deaf idols. The speaking God is angered when we converse with mute idols. The living God is angered when we worship lifeless idols. It's beneath what he has made us to be, to squander our worship on idols that rely on us for their life. We trivialize what he has made us when we worship other gods. So the aim of judgment is to turn our hearts towards God so that God is not vindictive, just passing out judgment here and there. The aim and the intention of judgment is so that we will turn towards him and find in him our, our, our Savior. And that is why at chapter 17, verse 31, he talks about standing alongside judgment is the appointed man, the man Jesus. In the time of judgment, the appointed man can become an advocate on our behalf. And so 1 John tells us that if we have sinned, we have an advocate, Christ Jesus, who goes to God on our behalf. He came to earth to show what the true God is like. And so when we read in the book of Acts earlier, it says that Jesus went around doing good. This appointed man went around doing good, and he touched the needy with compassion. He loved the commoner. He was the exact rep representation of God. He was the son of God, Hebrews tells us. And when he came to earth, Luke 4 tells us that he proclaimed good news to the poor. He proclaimed freedom for, this, for the prisoners of sin. He brought recovery of sight for the blind, the spiritually blind. He set the oppressed free, and he proclaimed the Lord's favor for all who believe in him. And he capitalizes the end of all of this, this discussion about God as creator, the God who is self-sufficient, the God who is sovereign, the God who is the God of judgment, the God who is the God of grace. He caps it that he is the God of resurrection. And he tells us that God assured us that he was for us by raising this Jesus from the dead. And this is the message that confused the people because it was so contrary to the gods that they had been worshiping. Here was a God who was anger, angry at sin, but he was angry because it was defacing the humans that he has made, and it was against his glory. And so he calls them to himself and provides the way of escape through the Savior, Christ Jesus, who, who resurrected from the dead. And so they wanted to hear more about this resurrection, and the end result of the matter is that the message was received by some at verse 32. They believed, I'm sorry, some mocked the message at verse 32. They couldn't handle the resurrection. It just did not make sense to them. So they rejected the message. Verse 33, some meditated on it. They wanted a bit more information. They needed time to let it, to let it sit and, and, and soak so that they could understand and decide whether or not they wanted to believe. And then some believed. And I don't know where you are today. The gospel message, the good news of Jesus and the fact that he resurrected from the dead is contrary to what we normally run across in our Western world. So maybe you 
have decided you're going to reject the message or maybe you're in that process of trying to work your way through and understand what it is that the Bible teaches and how it presents this God. And then obviously some have believed that this is life. In the late 1800s, there was an artist by the name of Paul Gauguin. He painted a, what is now a famous painting. It was almost five feet tall and 12 feet wide. And in his writing about this painting, and in his estimation, it was a philosophical masterpiece, in his words, on par with the Gospels. If you were to see this picture, it's designed to be read from, from right to left, and you watch the progression of what is happening as you, as you look at this, this, um, this painting. In the upper right-hand corner, he has his name in, emblazoned in yellow. In the upper left-hand corner, he has the name of the painting. As you're looking at the painting, it's, it's very confusing, and if he did not provide some sort of an insight to what he was painting, it'd be difficult to, to comprehend or, or to get anywhere close to what he intended. But it's supposed to trace the life of an individual. And it starts out with some, some, uh, some humans uh, looking a little bit odd and some various specters and so on, but it makes its way across the screen. And when you, you get down towards the end, there's a, a picture of a woman who is preparing to die. The name of the painting is in French because he, is, he was French or was born in Paris. But translated in English it is this. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Where do we come from? Where are we? Where are we going? Our world is asking those questions. Where do we come from? And the gospel provides the answer that there is a creator who loves his creation, who reaches out to his creation. What are we? We're not simply atoms that have been pushed together in the form of a human being. We're creatures who have been made in the image of God, who carry his image wherever we go. And then thirdly, where are we going? History has a pr progression. History is headed in a particular direction. And there is an end. There's a heaven to be gained. Gauguin's gospel, at least for him, could only provide questions and what I did not say is that this was his intention, at least, to be his final painting. He had dissipated his life in, in, in sinful living. His daughter had died that year. And he intended for this to be his final ex painting and his final explanation of life. So he painted the piece and then attempted what was an unsuccessful suicide. So Goggin's, Goggin's gospel could only provide questions in an attempted suicide for him. The gospel, on the other hand, provides answers, and it provides everlasting life. At the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul states it this way, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There was a song that I heard when I was a younger man. This goes like this. Every heart is filled with longing to be free from all life's pains. Yet the search through earthly treasures always end in, ends in vain. Only God who made the heavens can satisfy our souls apart from him 
and all his meaning. All things fail as they begin. And hearts deceived can only know a chasing of the wind. There's a lot of chasing of the wind in our world. But God has given us the answer in, in the gospel. And what we have to proclaim can be summed up what it says by what it says in Ephesians. Where it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is the message that we have for those who do not believe. We're not antagonistic to them. We're not over against them. We are with them and for them. And we proclaim this gospel that will allow the good God to show his kindness to them, not only now, but in the ages to come. I'll ask you to pray with me as we get ready to sing again. Lord, thank you for your word that reminds us that we need not fear you in the sense of being afraid and running away, but that you've given us Christ your son, who revealed to us what you are like and who died for our sins and who was resurrected from the dead so that we could trust in him and have newness of life. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us in whatever ways we worship petty idols to leave them behind and cling to the true God who gives us substance and gives us life, not just now, but life eternal. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.